I ask if you please stand with me out of reverence to the word of our Lord while we look at our passage for this morning. We'll continue our study of Acts with Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 26 to 40. Acts 8, 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opens, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this, his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About him or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you for the word of the gospel. We praise you for the work of the gospel in our hearts, wrought in us through your Spirit, regenerating our hearts and opening our ears and giving us eyes to see and to believe the Christ. And not just to believe mere facts about you, Lord Jesus, but to believe in you, to place our faith in you and only in you, trusting that we can have life only through faith in your name. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for your sacrifice on the cross as you died for our sins. You you were raised on the third day victorious or sin and death and hell, and your victory is our victory. Your vindication is our vindication. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for applying all of these things to us, and and Lord, for granting us the, the ability to understand, to believe these things. Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, for this wonderful plan of the gospel. And Lord, for your providence in electing us from before the foundation of the world to be your sons and daughters. Holy Spirit, we pray now as we look at this passage that you would help us, Lord, to see and to reflect and to rejoice in your sovereign work of salvation and all that you have done to bring this Ethiopian eunuch to faith in you and, Lord, to bring us to faith in you and help us, Lord, also through the power of the Holy Spirit to be used of you as tools in your hands, Lord, to to introduce others to you and, Lord, that you would, through our ministry, bring others to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and reliable guides. Lord, do that in us and through us. For your name's sake, amen. Please be seated. Last week, I mentioned briefly just a, a snippet of, of my testimony, and, uh, and, and that I realized that, that some of you here don't, have not heard my testimony. Um, I mentioned that I had come to Saving Faith in a, in a psychiatric hospital 30 years ago. 
And it was as a result of, of drug and alcohol abuse, and, and I really saw the effects of, of my sin it consumed me and, and, and really caused me to, to be paranoid and, and to fear everybody and everything. But through most of my life, I, I didn't fear the only real one that I should be fearing, Almighty God. So this was uh, October the 11th, 1992. And I remember turning on the, the television. It was a, a locked ward. I, I wasn't allowed to leave. But as I turned on the television and sat in the, in the, in the lounge room, there, there was a man preaching. And it was uh, not, a, not a, a well-known televangelist. Probably wouldn't have helped me at all. This is a man, I don't even know his name. You probably wouldn't even have heard of him if I had told you his name. But he was sitting by the, by the Sea of Galilee and he was talking about forgiveness and saying anybody can be forgiven if they turn away from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I just said I'd, know, I'd never heard the gospel before that. I'd, I'd, never, uh, I'd never even heard of anything call, called a sinner's prayer. But I just said, Lord, whatever is left of this wreck of a life is yours. Just please forgive me. And he did. He forgave me. And not only that, but he took away my, my desire for, for drugs. He, he took away my insanity. My mind was clear. Now, I know that doesn't happen with everybody, but God did that in me. And I, I praise God. I marvel at his work for that. But, but I would, as terrifying as it was to, to be living on what would be called drug-induced schizophrenia, of all the things that God did for me that day, it is my salvation that I am infinitely most thankful for. And I, the Monday was a holiday, it was Thanksgiving holiday, so I had to see the doctor before I was released and he met with me on the, on the Tuesday afternoon and, and said, you have a good prognosis, amen? And uh, we want you to, uh, you're free to go, we want you to do a 10-week um, treatment pro outpatient treatment program is based on the 12 steps, but you're free to go. And my, my mom picked me up and, and brought me back to, to their house. And, and, uh, and, and again, may, many of you may have heard this, but I, I remember going back and, and um, just rolling in the grass with joy. I said, I looked crazier probably in that moment than I ever did. But I had experience of forgiveness of the Lord. But back up prior to that, six months prior to that, I was, again, I'd never been exposed. I didn't own a Bible, but I'd never been exposed to the gospel. But one day I was, I was with some buddies who were watching wrestling, very edifying entertainment. And someone in the crowd held up a sign that said John 3.3. 3. And I said, oh, that sounds like it must be in the Bible or something. And in God's providence, if it had been in John 3.16, I probably would have never heard that before either, but I, but I probably would have given some kind of mental assent to it that, that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is a glorious verse. But in God's providence in this day, it was John 3.3. 3. And I, I went home and I didn't say anything to my friends, but I went home and, and looked it up in my Bible, and, which I'd never really read before. But John 3, 3 says, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And I, didn't, I, didn't, I had no idea what being born again was, but I knew I wasn't. And then a few months after that, I was just in the, beginning to be in the throes and seeing the, 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 the beginning to understand that my greatest problem was with Almighty God. And a woman came into the store that I was working in and gave me a little gospel track. I, I still have it, actually. It says, smile, Jesus loves you. And it had... So he had a key verses like, like John 3.16 and, and Romans 3.23 and 6.23. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in, in Christ Jesus. And so I, I, I read this, and, and this actually, I mean, this is the very sanitized version, but this, this that, that, that little book actually saved my life. It kept me from taking my life. And then going to after that, though, still thinking I needed to come off, get off drugs. I, again, I thought this was, was one of my biggest problems, and it was a big problem, but not my biggest. And I went to go to a, a, a drug treatment center, and, and they, they said, we, a six-month residential program, they said, we can't help you. 
You need a psychiatric evaluation. Imagine if you get turned away from rehab saying they can't help you. It's pretty discouraging. But it was in that psychiatric hospital that I met Jesus through his appointed messenger. This was God's plan for me on that day, and that day was ordained before the foundation of the world. It was on that day that the Lord would bring me through the power of the Spirit and the saving faith. And if you reflect on, on your life, just, just stop and remember, reflect on all that the Lord had, had done in your life even prior to your coming to faith. You know, for, for many of us, it, it, it came through, through believing parents. Some of us through a, a believing spouse. We, we came to faith after getting married. Some of us even through the witness of our children. Through believing co-workers or friends or neighbors. And all the work that the Lord was doing prior to that, it would begin to, to make you aware of your need so that at that time, at that perfect time, there would be a divine appointment that the Lord would, would through that chosen messenger, bring you to saving faith in Christ. Again, these individuals in my life, I, I have no idea any of their names. They don't know mine either. They have, they have no idea that, that I ever came to faith. But there were instruments in the Lord's hands. Just as there were instruments in the Lord's hands that, that he used to bring you to faith. I wonder, have, have you been used in the life of others to help bring them to faith? This is one of the greatest privileges that we can experience as human beings. To be used of God to point someone to eternal life in Jesus Christ. Well, as we continue our study in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, we're, we're, we're picking, off, picking up where we left off from last week in the middle of the chapter with the ministry of Philip the Evangelist. As we talked about with the children, many Christians had, had fled the great persecution that was taking place in, in Jerusalem. And, and when they, they left Jerusalem, when they fled, they took the gospel with them. Wherever they went, they took the gospel with them. And one of those who, who went from Jerusalem and ended up in Samaria was Philip. And Philip, remember, is one of the seven men who was chosen in Acts chapter 6 to care for the Hellenist widows in the church. And Luke described Philip, along with the others, as having a good reputation and being full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And last week we saw that Philip performed many signs and wonders, and he cast out, he cast out demons, he healed paralytics, and, and through those, those signs and wonders, they were not, they, signs and wonders couldn't save anyone, but through the signs and wonders opened the doors for the evangelism, that he, he began to preach the gospel. And many Samaritans came to saving, saving faith in Jesus Christ and were baptized. And then we saw the example of, of Simon Magus, who had made a profession of faith and, and had himself been baptized, but, but proved himself to be an unbeliever and, and earned a, uh, the most harsh rebuke from the Apostle Peter, saying, saying may, may your money perish with you. And so the, the, he's essentially saying, if you look at the original language, he's essentially saying, may you and your money go to destruction. May you and your money go to hell, is what he said. We don't know what happened to Simon Magus, whether he repented. He did ask that Peter, he didn't repent himself at that point. He asked, he, Peter told him to repent and pray, but he, he asked Peter to pray for him. He didn't pray himself. It didn't look good for Simon Magus. Then we're told that the, that, um, the disciples, so, so Peter and John and, and very possibly Philip as well, went back to Jerusalem, and that's in verse 25. The Holy Spirit was at work in the hearts of those Samaritans, untold numbers of Samaritans. Now in our passage this morning, we see the Holy Spirit at work as, as it, at work in Philip and at work in the one to whom Philip was sent. As the Lord sends Philip to speak to a single individual. Now this is actually the, the first account, a uh, personal account of conversion that we, we read in the book of Acts. That there has been tens of thousands of, of Jews in Jerusalem who were converted to faith. And then we, we saw in our last week, there was, there was untold numbers of Samaritans who were converted. But this is the first time that we hear of an actual testimony of conversion of, a, of an individual. 
And this passage is going to be followed in rapid succession with, with two more individual conversions. We'll see next time, Lord willing, uh, the conversion of, of Saul of Tarsus, who is converted directly under the personal witness of Jesus Christ in Acts 9. And then the conversion of Cornelius through the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10. We'll see many more individual conversions in the book of Acts. But, but again, this is the first one. This passage shows us the providence of God in salvation. We, we see the process whereby God sends a messenger to preach the good news and works in the heart of his elect individual to believe the good news. The Lord sends Philip to guide this Ethiopian eunuch, a man who is, as we'll see, doubly excluded from temple worship and Judaism. He guides him into the household of God and the Christian faith. And as with the Samaritan converts before him, this Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith through the ministry of God's appointed messenger. The message of the gospel is spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. God is saving his elect, moving through those he has called, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Christ is still building his church through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his messengers. The Holy Spirit is at work directing evangel evangelists to the elect and directing hearts to, of the elect, to the gospel, and regenerating their hearts so they receive and believe the gospel. There are really three key points that are interspersed throughout this passage. And we'll, we'll pick up on them as we go through, but, but again, they're, not, they're just kind of all through the passage. We'll see the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing souls. The word of the evangelist in bringing in the good news. And the response in the heart in, of the heart that believes the good news. Again, as we go through, I'll, I'll highlight each point as we arrive in, in this narrative. Now remember, our last passage, again, ended with Peter's rebuke of Simon Magus for trying to purchase the ability of the, to give the Holy Spirit to others. But now we see the Holy Spirit at work according to his sovereign will. You cannot purchase the Holy Spirit. And so we're told at the end of, the, of verse 25 that when they, assuming that refers to, to Peter and John as well as Philip, when they returned to Jerusalem and they preached the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And the action then picks up in verse 26, again with Philip. Earlier in chapter 8, that the gospel had spread through the persecution of believers, but now a believer goes on mission through the direct instruction of the angel of the Lord. And these instructions don't come here through the Holy Spirit, but again, through the angel of the Lord. The, the angel of the Lord we, we see referred to prominently quite often in, in the Old Testament as being God's appointed messenger. But we also see the angel of the Lord at key points in Luke and Acts. It was the angel of the Lord who told Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth would conceive and would give birth to John the Baptist. It was the angel of the Lord who told Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah in, in Luke 1. It was the angel of the Lord who, um, who, who declared to the angels, sorry, sorry, the angel of the Lord who declared to the shepherds of the birth of the Messiah in Luke chapter 2, the passage that, that Liam read for us on Christmas Eve. It was the angel of the Lord who opened the prison doors to release Peter and John in Acts chapter 5. It will be the angel of the Lord who will tell Cornelius to go to Peter at Joppa in Acts 10. But obviously the angel of the Lord does not act autonomously. Angel is, means messenger, and this messenger went with a message to Philip to carry the message to a specific place, to a specific person. Philip is scheduled for a divine appointment. The angel of the Lord commanded Philip to go south down the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now this area, you, you probably heard of the, of the Gaza Strip. I'm sure you've heard of it. This is, this is the area that, that is presently occupied by Palestinians. And, and they're, they're regularly 
sending rockets from the Gaza Strip into the, the surrounding area. This is the very area where, where Philip was ministering. Earlier in, in history, in redemption history, Gaza was the, the domain of the Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel. It's kind of ironic that it's still inhabited by enemies of Israel. But the, the Philistines had been destroyed by the Babylonian and Persian empires in the 6th century BC. And, and this region was again destroyed by Alexander Janaeus in 96 BC. So a, a lot of conflict in this particular stretch of territory. But because this region had been destroyed by Alexander Janaeus, it was, during this time, it was deserted. It was deserted. It was a desolate place. And Gaza was the, the last stop, place to stop for water in the southwestern Israel before entering into the desert on the way to Egypt and roads beyond. But this road was seldom used. Now, why would the Lord send Philip, who's just been used powerfully to, to bring many S Samaritans to faith. He's now getting sent into the middle of nowhere. He's not told why. And here we see another picture of Philip's character. He doesn't question like Elijah, let alone flee like Jonah. He simply arose and went. And then immediately we find out the reason that the Lord was sending Philip on this mission. Now we find out immediately, but he had to travel all the way down there. There was an Ethiopian on the road. Now the people of Ethiopia were, were the dark-skinned people who lived in the region of the Upper Nile, south of Egypt. This is, again, as I said to the kids, this is not this, the same location as modern Ethiopia, but modern Sudan. In the Old Testament, the region was commonly referred to as Cush. Historians refer particularly to the kingdom of Nubia, which had been a powerful nation in antiquity, and it had been governed by a succession of queens who bore the title the Candace. How does that sound, Candace? Should we call you the Candace? You are sitting kind of high up there above the rest of us. The, the queen was actually the queen mother. Now, now the, in that culture, they, they believed that the king was divine and he was above a, a affairs of state. So, so technically he reigned, but he left the governance of the country to his mother. I think about young men who move home in their 20s and, and go back out of their mother's roof. Maybe it's a bit like that. But Luke tells us that this Ethiopian was a particularly prominent man, for he was the queen's chief treasure. He would have been a, a very powerful, one of, the, one of the most powerful men in the country. And as was common in that region, those who were in such positions, especially those who were working in close proximity with women, were surgically emasculated. Now we think of, of those who had, had charge of, of a king's harem. So, so, the Lord, in his providence, sent Philip, his chosen messenger, all the way down to Gaza to this prominent Ethiopian eunuch. Luke tells us that the Ethiopian had just been in Jerusalem to worship. But as a Gentile, he would have been limited to the outer precincts of the temple, to the, the court of the Gentiles. He's probably one of those who is described uh, elsewhere in the scriptures as a God-fearer, a, a non-Jew who worshipped according to Judaism. But this man's exclusion was even more comprehensive than that of a typical Gentile. As a eunuch, he would have been barred from the temple precincts altogether. Now, I won't go there now, but, but Deuteronomy 23.1 is explicit. Such individuals were barred from were barred from the temple altogether. They couldn't even couldn't even go into any part of the of the temple precincts. They could not become a, a full fledged Jew. 
So this man sought to worship God, but he was cut off from worship with God's people. And when Philip meets him, he's, he's on his way home. And this was, this was no short journey. He's, he's just been there seeking, seeking God. He's on his way home. It was roughly 2,400 kilometers. It is distance, it's the same, about the same distance as from, from Kelowna to Tijuana. And he's not going on I-5 in a car. He's going in a chariot. A chariot is it's, apparently it would have covered about 20 kilometers a day. So, so this round trip would have taken him about four months. This is clearly a big commitment that he's made. Clearly he, clearly he was devoted to worshiping God. But there's even more devotion in what we see next. As he was seated in the chariot, again, this is, this is not a, a war chariot, but really more like a, a wagon. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. It seems that, that during his time in Jerusalem, he has procured a, a copy of an, an Isaiah scroll. Remember that the, the scriptures that at that time only contained the Old Testament, and they were, they were not, the scriptures were not contained in a book like we have. They were contained in scrolls. Made of, they were made of papyrus reeds that were flattened out into, into long sheets of paper. And so it would have been one scroll, would have been all 66 books of, of Isaiah, 65 books of Isaiah. And so as he's, as he's going along, he's reading Isaiah. And, and scrolls at this, at this point, because they were, they were painstakingly handwritten, they were very expensive. And in that culture, where the, the vast majority of people were illiterate, this was remarkable. He went all the way to Jerusalem to worship and came back with the word of God in his possession, but not yet in his heart. The Lord was drawing this man to himself by first making him aware that, that he, Yahweh, is the one true God as opposed to the pagan religion in his homeland. But again, he was as of yet not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. The Lord was drawing him to himself by revealing himself to the man in his word, but he did not yet understand and believe the truth. But all that was about to change. Now the Holy Spirit tells Philip directly, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and and imagine imagine Philip's wonder when he heard what this Ethiopian eunuch was reading. It was common in, in those days for people to read aloud. And so he, he actually heard with his ears what, what this man was reading. He heard the Ethiopian eunuch again reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is wonderful. Now, now really. Technically, it could have been any book of the Bible. Right? You, you, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus Christ when you consider it in its, in its proper authorial intent. But not only does Isaiah powerfully point to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but as we'll see, the book of Isaiah also has specific gospel application and gospel promise to Ethiopians and to eunuchs who believe. In Jesus Christ. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? Now Philip here is, is exemplary as God's evangelist in bringing the good news. He doesn't say much at this point. He, he simply asks a good question. And, and there's really, there's, there's major benefit to knowing techniques to share the good news of Jesus Christ. To, to know the Romans road. Using, using the, the, Paul's letter to the Romans a step-by-step -step way to, to point someone to faith in Jesus Christ. And I, would, I would love it at some point, Pastor Joshua, I need to talk about this, but actually have some evangelistic training in, in the church on some of these things. There's major benefit to, to using the things like the, the way of the master approach, where you, you ask a, a, someone if they're a good person, and then they usually answer yes, and then showing them from the Ten Commandments that they aren't really a, a good person according to God's holy law, and then bringing them to, to the knowledge of Christ. Trusting that, that through the work of the Holy Spirit that, that he will work through his word to, to show them their guilt and show them their need for Christ. 
Again, those, those techniques and, and others like them are, are good and helpful. But, but pe- being full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, as we're told that Philip was, means being sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. And in Acts, the Holy Spirit frequently directs through visions, and it seems at times audibly. And we'll see him do that with Peter in both ways in Acts chapter 10. However, remember, this is, this is narrative. This is not normative. We are never told in Scripture to seek direction from the Lord in this way. The Holy Spirit does not speak to us in the same way that he spoke to Philip, saying, go over there to that guy. Rather, he speaks to us through his scriptures and through his providence. You need to know the scriptures so that you can guide people to the scriptures and through the scriptures. You need to actively seek to obey the scriptures so that you are on the lookout for those to whom the Lord will send you. You need to care for the person you are talking to and to listen carefully so that you can ask good questions and see how the Word of God intersects with his or her life. The Ethiopian eunuch replies, How can I understand unless someone guides me? He needed a guide. He needed someone to explain the Scriptures to him. He needed someone to guide him into the truth. And so the Lord guided Philip to him for this purpose. Just stop again and think about God's providence here. At the very moment that Philip intersected with this Ethiopian eunuch, he was reading Isaiah. And so he invited Philip up into the chariot. The passage that he was reading at that very moment, we're told, was was from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. This quote here is from the, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. Again, just pause and reflect on God's providence. Again, all scripture points to Christ. But Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, that that Warren read for us earlier, is is perhaps more clearly than, than any other Old Testament scripture explicitly pointing us to Jesus Christ. This is one of the servant songs of Isaiah that that points to God's servant who will suffer for God's people. This is the the main reason why why some people, theologians refer to the book of Isaiah as the gospel according to Isaiah. And all of this, remember, was was written in the the 7th, rather in the the 8th century, sorry, 7th century, some 800 years before the ministry of Jesus Christ. But this Ethiopian eunuch does not understand who is being spoken of here. And so he asks Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About him, rather about himself or about someone else? He wanted to know whether whether this passage that he was reading about, whether Isaiah was speaking about himself or about another. And then Philip opened his mouth. At beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. Philip opened his mouth and explained the scripture, showing how that passage and presumably other passages of scripture point to Jesus Christ. This is reminiscent of of Jesus' ministry to the two disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection in Luke 24. Philip showed the eunuch how this Jesus Christ is the hermeneutical key that unlocks the Old Testament. Again, in the intended meaning of the Spirit-inspired human author, every passage in the Old Testament points to Christ. But again, this passage is abundantly clear to those with eyes to see and hearts in which the Holy Spirit is at work. The focus of these two verses is the injustice of the cross. This is Luke's focus on his gospel account as he relays the account of the the cross in Luke 23, encapsulated in verses 20 to 22. Pilate addressed the crowd once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Remember, this is Christ's own people. This is Jews who are shouting out to the Romans, their enemies, to crucify Jesus, who they have made their enemy. And then a third time, Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? 
I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But the crowd was insistent, so Pilate acquiesced and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. The most unjust injustice that has ever taken place in the history of creation. Wicked men charging God the Son with guilt and killing him. The suffering servant is, is presented as innocently, silently being humiliated and unjustly killed. Wicked people have done this. But this passage speaks about how the servant's death would lead to the salvation of wicked people. Wicked people, even like some of those who were there physically, some of those same people who shouted out, crucify him, themselves came to save faith in Jesus Christ. And we, even though we were not there physically, we were also guilty of that same crime because it was your sins and mine that caused the death of Jesus Christ. You and I are wicked people guilty for the death of Jesus Christ. Yet through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, in his death, he died in our place. Verse 6, the verse before, the ones quoted, says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant would die for the sins of his people and would be ultimately vindicated. Verses 9 and 10, the verses immediately afterwards, after the passage it was quoted, speak of the vindication of the servant. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He was not guilty, but we are. The Father punished him for the sins of others. He bore the wrath of God to take away our sin. He will see the reward of his suffering. Brothers and sisters, you are the reward of his suffering. He will see you in glory. And not just us, but from every church that is gathered in this city, in this country, around the world, where people truly call on Jesus Christ. Every Christian in this country and around the world and throughout history is the reward of Christ's suffering. He will see the reward of his suffering, and that is you, and it's me. His bride, us, we will be gathered before him in glory. I want to commend this passage to you again. Sit down today in your, in your, in your personal devotions or in your family worship, and read Isaiah 53, sorry, 52, verse 12 to 53, 13. Sorry, 52, 13 to 53, 12. It's also going to be a, a focus, one of the key focuses in, a, in the questions for the care groups this week. Study this passage. Familiarize yourself with this passage. Memorize this passage. Preach this passage to yourself daily. Now, very likely... Philip guided this man, the, the Ethiopian, to Isaiah 11, 10, 11. As I said earlier, there is, is gospel promise for Ethiopians in Isaiah as well. Isaiah 11, 10, 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, of his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Do you see that there in verse 11? The remnant will be gathered from Cush, from, from Ethiopia. This message, the Messiah, is for foreigners. He is for Gentiles Two, and again, Cush, Ethiopia is mentioned here by name. 
Now, very likely, Philip also got this man, this eunuch, to Isaiah 56, 3-5. Yet let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from my people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. A eunuch would have no progeny. But the promise here in the Lord is something better. A a eunuch would have no progeny, would carry on his family name. His family name would die with him. However, there is a far greater name given to those who trust in Jesus Christ. Even this eunuch. And so Philip guided this man into the truth. He guided him to faith in Jesus Christ. As as Derek Thomas explains, Philip then acted as a spiritual midwife, gently bringing this man to an understanding of the gospel, the good news about Jesus that he desperately needed to know and believe. And then with Philip's exposition complete, they came upon some water. Which, Which, in this arid region, this is desert, in this arid region, it's in itself an amazing providence from the Lord. This, this is possibly Tel El Hasi, which was a natural spring that had been in that, in that region for, for centuries. But this new brother was elated. And he said, here, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, this is an important question. What hinders me or what prevents me from being baptized? Peter will ask the same question regarding Cornelius in Acts 10.47 and 11.17. What prevents one from being baptized? Well, not being a Christian prevents you from being baptized, or at least it should. Baptism is for believers only. It is those who want to make a public declaration of their union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. But if you're a Christian, you should be pursuing baptism. Now, now some, some would use this here as a, as a proof text for baptizing someone right away. As soon as someone gets saved, you, you need to baptize them. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but again, this is narrative, not normative. Under normal circumstances, a time of teaching and discipleship would precede baptism to make sure that the candidate understands what they are doing and why. So the question for, for those who are gathered here, is are you a Christian? And if so, what prevents you from being baptized? Now, now the idea of an unbaptized Christian is like a fish out of water, pun intended. A, A fish out of water is still a fish, but it isn't where it belongs. A fish out of water is still a fish, but it isn't where it belongs. Now, so what prevents people from being baptized? Sometimes it's the fear of man. Sometimes people say, well, I don't want to get up there and get my testimony. It's, it's embarrassing. It's, it's humbling for me. Good. Don't let the fear of man stop you. Have a fear of God that supersedes any fleshly fear of man. Sometimes doctrinal misunderstanding prevents people from being baptized. And that can be true in the, in the case of, of, a, of, a, of a paedo-baptist. Right? Those who, who believe and, and practice infant baptism, those who are, are baptized as infants, are not truly baptized. Or in the case of, of a person who, who doesn't understand the importance of, of baptism or, or what it actually represents. Again, a baby can't do that. A baby is not unified in union with Christ in his death and resurrection. The baby needs to grow up to understand the gospel, to come to faith. And then, from the point of belief, personal testimony, be baptized. Now, I shared that the the testimony of my salvation, but, but bear with me. I'd like, I think it's also pertinent for me to, to share the testimony of my baptism. And some would say baptisms, but there's only one. You see, I was sprinkled as a baby 
in the United Church. And then when I came to faith, I was in a, in a, a group called the United Pentecostals. And, and there were genuine, sincere Christians in that group. But by the, the definition of, of and, and direction of, of other Pentecostal groups, the, the United Pentecostals are labeled as a cult because they deny the Trinity. And so when, when they're, they, they say that you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you are, are baptized, unless you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's also false teaching. And they say that you must be baptized in the name of Jesus only. Contrary to the, to the Trinitarian formation, formulation of baptism, that you were to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I remember asking about that. They said, well, Jesus is the name. I'm like, okay, I don't understand. I was a brand new believer. And then years later, it's, this is, don't do what I did. I, I got involved and in, mixed up in another group that had cultish teaching. And, and, I, and I got dunked there again. But then finally, it was at a membership interview at my church in, in Louisville. When the pastor said, are you baptized? Assuming I was. I said, well, actually, it's funny you should ask that. So I shared my testimony of what had happened. He said, well, in, in God's province, I was in a, in, a, in a good Baptist seminary, and, and so I had access to good professors. And, and one of the professors said, well, you know, I explained to him that, look, I was Trinitarian. He said, that's not the issue. He said, was it a church? You see, if, if you were... He said, if, if you were, if you were, even if you're Trinitarian and you're in a Mormon context and get baptized or dunked, it's not a real baptism because it's not a real church. And then to, to another, another professor, a, 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 a friend of mine, I asked, I asked him the same question. He said, he, he said, well, it's not a real baptism because it's not a Trinitarian formula. Because you're not baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not a real baptism. And so I went back to my church after 17 years at this point of being a Christian. I got baptized. Humbly. Good. And so I said, I've been sprinkled once, dunked twice, and now I'm finally getting baptized. And maybe that, maybe some of you are in that position. Maybe you think, well, you're wondering about your baptism. Please make, make a time to talk to Pastor Joshua to me, and we would be happy to walk through that with you and to baptize you. But as, as we keep going here, let's, let's just take a look, careful look at, at maybe you haven't, haven't picked up on this, but, but if you look at, at the scriptures closely, look carefully at the, the verse numbers here. Okay, this is from the ESV, and, and most modern versions will go, look, you see verse 36, and then verse 38. There's no verse 37. And why is that? Remember, the verse numbers were, were added much later on. But, but why, is, why is, is there no 37? If you, you, you'll see verse 37 in the King James Bible, where, where it says, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's true. That's true. It's, it's actually very close to, uh, to the, what... what um, Peter, Paul rather says to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, 30 to 33. He brought them out and said, Sir, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all in his house. It took them that same hour by night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and his family. It, now, just as an aside, this is another example of immediate baptism, which is, again, Descriptive, but not prescriptive. It, it is uh, it's telling us what happened, not the way it should always be. And there's a mention here, notice, of, of the whole household. And, and, and I have Presbyterian friends who, who are brothers in the Lord, who I love dearly, but, but they would say, well, look, it's household. But that's really eisegesis. That's reading into the text. There is no mention of infants here. And furthermore, the command of verse 31 is to believe something that infants clearly cannot do. Infant baptism is not here. In fact, it's not in the scriptures at all. But what's happening here? What, what's, with this, what's with this verse? Why, why, is, why is there no verse 37 in, in your ESV Bible? 
One, it comes, this is when there's a textual variance, when there, when there is some question as to the, whether a verse is actually there in the original manuscripts or, or, or not. We, we, we only have the existent manuscripts. We have to rely on the, on the manuscripts, that, the manuscript evidence that we have. And then to make a case on a case-by-case -case basis and say, well, okay, is that, is that likely there or not? And this particular verse is actually poorly attested to in the early manuscripts. In fact, it's not in any manuscripts, any of the early manuscripts until the 5th century of the common era, 5th century AD. It was, was either, now there's two options here, it was either omitted by scribes before the 2nd century or it was added later by a scribe. The first manuscript we have are from around the 2nd century. But again, the text is true. There's, there's no major point of doctrine that is at issue here. But, but again, it's, it's not in the original manuscripts. But it's clear from this passage that Philip believed the testimony of the man's faith and baptized him. And so the brother commanded the chariot to stop. And verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So he went down to the water and he came up. The word, the word baptizo actually means to immerse, to go under the water. And again, the fact that baptism was, was undertaken immediately in early days follows from Acts 2.38. Okay, so we see the same thing with, with Cornelius. We see the same thing with the Philippian jailer. But again, this is not, not normative in the rest of Scripture. But when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Philip had, had done what the Lord had told him to do. And the eunuch saw him no more, but he went on his way. And he actually continued on his way down to Cush, down to Ethiopia. And it's actually very, it, it's, it's, historians say that, that, that he actually became an evangelist in his own country. And that many in Ethiopia came to faith through the testimony of the Ethiopian eunuch. And he rejoiced in his salvation. So he'd gone all the way to Jerusalem, 2,400 kilometers. But he did not meet God until he was on his way home. When the Lord sent Philip, the evangelist, to share the good news with him. To expound the scriptures for him. And rejoiced in his salvation. But Philip, we're told, was found at Azotus. And he passed through, as he passed through, he preached the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Azotus was, it was Ashdod, which is about 20, uh, about 30 kilometers up the coast from Gaza. So he continued working his way up the coast until he came to, to Caesarea. And that's, there was the, the, a Roman um, stronghold on, on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast. And there, there he actually remained. We, we actually don't hear again from Philip until, until chapter 23. We're told he, he actually remained there in Caesarea. But he'd gone along his way. Wherever he went, he took the gospel with him. And, and Luke calls him Philip the Evangelist. So we're seeing the fulfillment of Scripture. We're seeing the promises that are not just for Israel, but for people, again, from every tribe and tongue and nation. Psalm 68, 31 says, Nobles shall come from Egypt, from and Cush shall hasten to stretch out our hands to God. And we see the fulfillment here in this Ethiopian eunuch. Cush shall hasten to stretch out our hands to God. The gospel is continuing to advance. The message of Jesus Christ has gone from, Jer from Jerusalem, Judea, Judea, to Samaria, and is going to the ends of the earth. Philip the evangelist shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch who himself became an evangelist. And brothers and sisters, you too are evangelists. Now, speaking of myself, I'm not nearly as good of an evangelist as I should be. And that measure of goodness as an evangelist is not based on the results, but it's based on faithfulness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's relatively easy to, to share the gospel here with people who, are, who mostly agree with what I'm saying and believe what I'm saying. But when you go out there on the street, it's, it, it, it takes guts. It takes boldness. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. 
to wherever you go to, to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with you. To, to seek the Lord. To seek to be used of Him to shine the light of Christ. To people that, that people who are, are outcasts, excluded, maybe not like an, an Ethiopian eunuch, but excluded in countless other ways. And you can welcome them not just into society, but into the kingdom of God. Remember how the Lord used others to share the gospel with you. May he use you to share the gospel with others. I reached out to, to uh, Brooke Maws, um, who, uh, who we've had come and minister in this church. And as, as many of you know, he, he was a, he's an Israeli, was a, a pastor in Israel for, for over 40 years. And it was actually in the same region, as in, in what is now Tel Aviv, which was in that same region where Philip had been. His church called the Grace and Truth Congregation. Again, it was this, the, the, the same area 2,000 years later. And I asked him if he could, could bear testimony of ways that, that he has seen the gospel at work. Particularly, I was, wanted to ask him about from the every tribe and tongue and nation perspective. His was, is one of the only churches in Israel where, where Jew and Palestine, where Jew, Jews and Palestinians worship God together in the same church. And asked him, were there any testimonies of where, where he could see the, the gospel at work bringing, you know, the world is so focused on, on racial tolerance and, and reconciliation. And I've said so many times, the only real source of, of, of real reconciliation is the gospel, whereby we are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to each other. Where people from every tribe and tongue and nation worship Jesus Christ together. And that is on on display powerfully at Grace and Tooth Congregation in Israel. And it's powerfully on display in our church. And he explained, he said that, that one of the ways that he's seen it is when, when there were rocket attacks from Gaza, which were, especially earlier on, they were, they were targeting specifically Tel Aviv because that was the closest big city, and indiscriminately targeting civilians. And you could think of a way this is where, where Palestinians are attacking Jews, you could think there, there would, in the, in the flesh, be a natural mistrust. But he said that the times of solidarity in the Christians in that church grew and abounded even more when those rocket attacks were taking place. This is the gospel of God. This is the gospel that, that reconciles outsiders and brings them into the family of God. Again, if you are here as part of the family of God, it is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in sending someone to speak to you and working your, in your heart to respond with repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, you have to open your mouth to tell others the good news. You know, I've, I've, I've commonly heard a quote from Francis of Assisi saying, preach the gospel wherever, preach the gospel wherever you go and, and when necessary, use words. There's no evidence that, that Francis of Assisi ever actually said that. In fact, it's not true. It's not true of Assisi and it's not true of all evangelists. Francis of Assisi was, was an evangelist who shared the gospel with people. What he was saying is that your life needs to reflect belief in the gospel. But you still need to share the gospel. Like we read in, in Romans chapter 10. Let's just turn there as we close. So Romans chapter 10. Verse 10. With the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction there between Jew or Greek. The same is Lord over all, 
bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to believe in him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Brothers and sisters, you have beautiful feet. And you do not need to get a pedicure to have beautiful feet. You have beautiful feet of the gospel as a messenger of the gospel. May we go as God's messengers bringing the message of Jesus Christ, to bear witness of Jesus Christ to this dark and dying world for the glory of his name and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for your great grace. Lord, just as you brought this man who was was twice an outcast into the kingdom of God, into your very family. Lord, we also who were outcasts in so many ways have been brought into your kingdom and into your family. Help us, Lord, to go. We have the same spirit who indwelt Philip. Help us to go with confidence that you have sent us and will send us to many to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And we can be confident that as we proclaim your name through the power of your same spirit, you will call men and women to repentance and faith. Work in us and through us, we ask for the glory of your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.